So I don't usually wear a watch. I had one on today so that I wouldn't stay outside for too long greeting everybody. And then um, when I got to start talking to Micah here, I was really glad that I did have it. Boy, that, that guy's ready to go. I'm excited for that kind of energy. Hans and Tanya, may God bless you with strength and endurance for the rest of time. Um, you know, today, uh, if, if you're new here, if you're still kind of figuring out what Waterway Church is all about, uh, we've talked about a lot of things today so far, and uh, we're going to get into a Bible study here in just a moment. Um, but one of the things that we try to do, that we try to do well, is continue to celebrate God as we live the lives that we're living. It is possible, it is possible for even Christians to fall into the trap of being frustrated, being angry, being judgmental, and being negative. It's possible even for Christians to fall into that trap in the world where we live, right? But one of the things that we try to work at here is to remember God's incredible blessings. That's why you heard a report from Claire King this morning and, and our debt reduction team. We don't often, and, and we intentionally don't, talk about a lot of finances and businessy kind of stuff on Sunday morning. But every once in a while, we need to highlight those kind of things so that we can remember what God has brought us through. Some of you remember sitting at Media Mennonite Church a mile down the road 15 years ago when God kind of planted a dream, planted a vision in, in the eyes of the congregation and said, our building is getting full. It feels like we need something different. We don't know what this looks like and we have no idea how we can accomplish it. But as a congregation, we came together and said, this is something we need to work at. And so what Claire was talking about today, there are some big numbers there. And if you would have told me 15 years ago that we would have a $4.5 million project, I'd say, wow, that's incredible. How is that going to happen? And, and Claire, you told us today that we had that project. And I still look back and I say, wow, that was incredible. How did that happen? Well, it happened not because we're so amazing or because we've just got an incredible group of leaders and givers here at this church. It happened because God was faithful to the vision that he gave us. God spoke, and our congregation makes those big decisions together. What are we going to do? How are we going to manage things? How are we going to spend our money? How are we going to invest in the kingdom? God, over the last 15 years, kept directing us towards that vision, built a bigger place so there's more room for the people who keep coming. And sometimes we didn't know exactly if that would work out or how that would work out, but God was faithful every step of the way. And now we can look back and say, wow, a $4.5 million project, and all that's left is $800,000 and some change? I mean, yeah, that's a bunch of money, but that's like, what, 15%? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And so we say, yay, God. And, and that's a bit of why you heard a little bit of business today. It's not just about numbers, and it's not just about giving. It's mostly about praising God and saying, God, thank you. How many of you right now have something to be thankful about where you're sitting? I'm going to give you just a moment before we launch, before I launch into this sermon time, I want to give you just a moment to be thankful. And I'm going to ask you, you know, maybe you have something you need to say out loud and we'll be thankful with you, but maybe you just need to take a moment to say thank you to God. So go ahead and do that. God, we lift up these thanks and we praise you for what you've done and what you continue to do here among us. Thank you, Lord. Help us never to forget your faithfulness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so today we are uh, continuing our study in the book of Revelation.
Today, um, we're going to be looking at Revelation 11, 12, 13, some stuff here right in the very middle of the book. Um, if you are new with us or if you haven't been here before, if you're just kind of catching up, uh, we've been working through the book of Revelation, talking about this vision that Jesus Christ gave to the Apostle John. This vision was delivered uh, about 60 years after Jesus lived on this earth, after he uh, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended into heaven. And, and then one of, uh, one of his disciples was still living on this earth. It was John. He was in prison for, um, for sharing too much about Jesus according to the powers that be. And so John was in prison, and it says in the beginning of the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ spoke to John and gave him a revelation. The, the word in Greek is an apocalypsis kind of this, this vision of what truly is going to be, and in some cases, things that already are. And so John had this vision, and we've been studying through that in the last number of weeks. And, and we've been careful, I've been careful, not to get into too many very specific details, but instead, with Revelation, looking at the big themes of what God is presenting here. We could spend years and years and years investigating every little connection to every other piece of the Bible and this person's idea and that person's idea. We're not going to do that. I had, uh, had a few responses this week from people in our small groups who are working through these discussions. You know, during the week, they'll talk about the things that I say on Sunday morning. And one of the groups said, you know, people in our group feel like we could just probably study Revelation all year. Maybe there should be a year worth of sermons. And somebody else said, you know, we're kind of ready to be done with Revelation. Could we just we just kind of move on to something else? I know, right? This is the challenge. How deep do you go? How far down the rabbit hole do we dive? Well, with the book of Revelation, we just have to remember that this is a prophecy. This is a vision that John had, and John is trying to share that vision with us. And of course, we have it through the Holy Scripture, so we must take it seriously. However, there is a lot of mystery in here. There are things, probably more so in the book of Revelation than some of the other books of Scripture, there are things in here that we can't quite figure out. There are some things that are kept from us, not because God's trying to be sneaky, but because there are things that we don't need to know. And there are some things that God keeps to himself. So this is prophecy. We have to remember that. There is mystery present. And with prophecy, the details are often argued by men and women who land at different places on what the details mean. We could get bogged down in people's ideas that don't really affect our ethics. We're going to try not to do that, but we are going to study this seriously. So here we go. A little quick summary, Revelation 10 last week, John saw a majestic angel standing partly on the land, partly on the sea. This angel gave John a scroll and said, John, here, eat this. And there's this picture. And John says, it tasted sweet in my mouth. In other words, it was a good message at first, but it turned his stomach sour. He said it was a hard message to deliver. John is now participating in his own vision. And there have been messages delivered through the opening of seven seals of a scroll and through trumpet announcements and through seven thunders, but John was not allowed to tell us what the thunders say. Remember, there's mystery here, even as we try to figure out what John and what the Lord is telling us in Revelation. So now in Revelation chapter 11, that's where we're going to start our day and where we're going to spend most of our time. In verse number one, John said, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told... Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, don't measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now, it might be tempting to say, well, let's just see what this means. Very simple. Somebody go and measure a city, measure a temple, measure a building. 
but only certain parts of it. And then for three and a half years, it's going to be trampled. That, that could be. But now there are some who say, if you dive deeper into some of the commentary, and of course others would argue, but some would say that John here is not talking about a literal temple building, but about the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, the apostle Paul says to the believers there, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? That was written before John wrote Revelation down. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says again, we are the temple of the living God. There are some who believe that this temple being talked about here is indeed God's people, not a literal building. Others argue about it. That's fine. But it's interesting in Zechariah chapter 2, and this is the kind of stuff that gets me turned on. Zechariah chapter 2 in verse 1. This is in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, hundreds of years before the revelation was given to John. The prophet Zechariah says, I looked up and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. There's some similar language here, right? And Zechariah says, I ask, where are you going? And he answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. So here's a guy, hundreds of years before John's vision, saying, I'm going to measure the city. In verse 3 of his vision, Zechariah says, while the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. In the book of Zechariah, there's this picture of an angel going to mark out the boundaries of a city. And another angel comes down and says, Zechariah, go tell that guy that even after he measures it, the reason why he's measuring it is so God can see who God has to protect. Because God says, I will be their protection. I will be a wall of fire around it. And the Lord's glory will be within. See, isn't it? It's interesting to look at that, isn't it? And then when I go back and read Revelation chapter 11, I see here's John saying, John who would have known Zechariah's writing, John who would have been very familiar with this old Jewish prophecy. John writes down, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, was told go measure the temple with its worshipers. Who are the people that God needs to protect? We know one of the things we've been talking about week after week with Revelation is that God looks after his people. God loves people. And God continues to invite everyone to be part of the group that is called his people. Zechariah reminds us that these measurements sometimes happen so that we know who God will protect. In Revelation 11, go measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. The outer court of the temple, that was where, in the times of the Jews and the Gentiles, that was where the Gentiles were, the people who were not God's people. They were outside. The picture here in Revelation is that God protects his people. He doesn't protect those who are outside of his people because those who are outside of his people will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Interesting stuff, isn't it? As we hold it carefully thinking about what is God saying here. We can talk about the details, but what's the picture? Whether, whether you think of this as a literal temple or whether you think of us being the temple of God, whether you think about it as a literal three and a half years or 42 months, simply being a, a symbol for, for things that can, that can be even bigger and greater, 42 months, that's three and a half years, 1,260 days if each month was 30 days. 
It's interesting, the number 42 pops up. John talks about this from time to time in Sunday school. The number 42 pops up. There are 42 stages in Israel's journey through the wilderness as God brought them out of Egypt and delivered them to the promised land. There are 42 generations recounted in the scriptures from Abraham to the time of Jesus. That is when God established his people until he sent their savior. In Daniel, it's talked about as times, time, and half a time. So two plus one plus a half, three and a half, 42 months. Oh, we could go knee deep in this stuff, couldn't we? But what is the meaning? What is the message? The message is that God knows who his people are and God protects them. We can argue about semantics all the time and for some of us, that's fun. But we're trying to wrap this up by the end of the year and so I'm going to move on. The rest of the book of Revelation 11 really says that um, there are these two witnesses who come. They prophesy by the power of Moses and Elijah. They're killed by a beast. There are unbelievers who celebrate their death, and then God raises these dead people and takes them to heaven after three and a half days. It says in um, Hebrew, or I'm sorry, in Revelation 11, verse four, these, these two witnesses. Why, by the way, why is God sending witnesses to the earth? What does a witness do? What does a witness speak about? A witness speaks about the truth, right? The witness is, is charged with telling the truth about what they have seen. Why? Why is it important to have witnesses? I know this is somewhat hypothetical. It's hard sometimes for a whole big group to talk back and forth. But why is it important to have witnesses? If something important has happened, why would you need a witness? Because sometimes people need to know, Right? Sometimes people need to hear what is really going on because there are all kinds of voices that try to contribute to the story. Try to, well, this is what's happening and this is what's really going on. God says in Revelation eleven three, I will appoint my two witnesses and they're going to prophesy for a while clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth, a very humble garment. It's a, it's a sign of a sign of a prophet. It's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of people turning towards God and away from everything else. And so these witnesses, they are coming to talk about the truth. It says in verse 4 of Revelation 11, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Two olive trees, two lampstands. If you want to get into the symbolism, you can look back at Zechariah again. Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're talked about as the olive trees bringing the message of God to their time. The lampstands, we've heard about them in the book of Revelation already. The lampstands are signs and symbols for the churches that are arranged around Jesus Christ. Why are there two of them? Well, in the Bible, it says there must always be at least two witnesses if you want to learn the truth. One person can be swayed, can be bought, can be mistaken. Two people can confirm the truth of an issue. So there are two witnesses here. Some also suppose that maybe there are two witnesses because of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 1 through 4, only two of them were still listed as faithful to their original calling. And so these two churches, these two lampstands are the two faithful witnesses. You see how deep this can go. But God says, I'm going to send two witnesses. They will prophesy. They're like two olive trees. They're like two lampstands. They stand before the Lord of the earth. 
Verse five says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. This is recalling the prophet Elijah who lived on this earth. Do you remember when Elijah was confronted with all those prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Do you remember what happened to those prophets when they opposed the Lord? Fire came down from heaven. God says, I've done it before. I can do it again. It says in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 11, these witnesses, they have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they were prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. This recalls not only Elijah, who shot fire down from heaven at the command of the Lord, but also Moses. Do you remember when he was leading the people out of Israel or out of Egypt to the promised land? He talked to Moses, and Moses talked to Pharaoh, and there were plagues, and one of them was that the Nile River turned into blood. So see these things that are being talked about here in Revelation. They're not so fantastic. They're not so unheard of. These are things God says, hey, I've done it before to convince people. I'll do it again if I have to, to convince people, because all through Revelation, God is trying to convince people. He knows he is the amazing God who's done everything good. These witnesses, they know that he is the amazing God who has done everything good. But over and over in the book of Revelation, we hear about people who reject that God is God. And they reject the truth that he has done everything good. People who just say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know about it. Take your message of the Lord and go away. I'm doing what I want. I'm God. Or or this other framework or philosophy or idea that I have, or my wallet is my God. People turn to all kinds of things except for the Lord. That's why God keeps coming back, keeps sending witnesses, keeps sending these messages, keeps bringing fire from heaven, keeps turning water to blood, to get people's attention so that they might, that we might turn to him. It says in verse 7 of Revelation 11, now when these two witnesses have finished their testimony, so notice it's not until their job is done. God is in control of the times here. There are no surprises for the Lord. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Oh, we could talk for weeks and weeks about this, this, about the, the beast, the abyss, overpowering, killing. What does it look like? Has it happened already? Is it still yet to come? Is it both of those things? Here, there's just this introduction of the beast. And we see that there is still indeed opposition to God, but it's not really human. What does Ephesians 6 tell us? that we must dress ourselves in the garments of the Lord. We must continue to fight against the spiritual powers of evil that are in charge of this world and that are part of the heavenly realms. Our, Our enemies, what? They are not flesh and blood. This is what Revelation reminds us. Even though so many people of flesh and blood seem to be our enemies, we are shown that there is an evil spiritual power behind this. There's a beast, there's a Satan, there's another beast. This is our problem. And so when these witnesses finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies, it says in verse 8, will lie in the public square of the great city, talking about Jerusalem, but which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, it says in Revelation 11:8, where also their Lord was crucified. Sodom is an example of human cities at their most immoral and corrupt. That's a little bit like what's happening in this time. Egypt is a picture of human cities at their most oppressive. Egypt, which held the Israelites as slaves. So this great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified, this is where their bodies are going to lay unburied for three and a half days. That doesn't happen in our times, does it? But this 
is a picture of what will happen. And then I'm going to read for you quickly the next five verses. Here's the story as Jesus showed it to John, as John recounts it to us, as we record it, as we read it in the scriptures. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. These witnesses of God, right? The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And those two went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Interesting, that's nothing new for Elijah, is it? That's how he went the first time. Might be a new experience for Moses. Verse 13, at that very hour, there was severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. God has gotten their attention through all this. But notice, giving glory to God is not the same as giving your life to God. At this time, people are saying, Lord, you must be in charge. There must be something going on because nothing else could do this. But we have to understand that acknowledging that God has created things is not the same thing as repenting of our sins, turning from all that we've done that is evil, and turning towards the Lord. You can acknowledge and look and say, well, the Lord is certainly in control. The demons do that. But salvation is about giving your life to God, not just acknowledging that the Lord exists. There are plenty of people who know that the Lord exists, but they have turned away from him, rejected him, and decided not to have anything to do with him. Salvation is about when we come to God and say, God, I've made a mistake. I'm turning away from all this stuff that I've done before. I'm turning away from my sins. God, I'm turning to you, and I put myself at your mercy. That's what salvation is. But here, even survivors of this city, even survivors of this severe earthquake, even though they gave glory to God, many were not convinced that they ought to give their life to him. And then there's this little interlude. There's this little chorus. Start us in verse 15 of Revelation 11. There was a little interlude like this after the sixth seal was opened. Now there's an interlude after the sixth trumpet was blown. Some think that this signals a repeat, a reboot. But it says in verse 15 of Revelation 11, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. A trumpet was blown to get people's attention, right? Seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the king of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. In other words, the Lord is now in charge over all the earth fully. And it says he will reign forever and ever. Verse 16, the 24 elders, we read about them early in Revelation. The 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. It says in verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. So these judgments are happening. These seven or these six trumpets have been blown. And now before the seventh one, there is this interlude. There is this, there is this trumpet blown and, and people are crying out all from heaven. Indeed, Jesus Christ is in power over the earth. This is what is going to happen. This should give us faith and hope and confidence, knowing that no matter how bad things get on this earth, Jesus will set it right. 
An interesting little piece if you're into trivia, and if you've got your Bibles open or if you're looking on your phone there, if you look at Revelation 11, verse 17, there are these 24 elders who are around the throne, and there's all kinds of symbolism that we could go into with who they are, where did they come from, what do they symbolize, what do they mean. But these are people who are worshiping Jesus with all they are. And look at what they say in verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. See, Ric Flair didn't come up with that line. He picked it out of Revelation 11. But you'll notice here what these elders say. They don't say the one who is and who was and is to come. We're used to hearing that in Revelation, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, right? What do these elders say? We're praising the God, the one who was, and the one who is. There's, there's no more to come at this point. And this gets, this gets people who want to think deeply about Revelation all twisted around. Because here's what some people say. You want to you go just a little bit deeper into what does Revelation talk about here? We talked about seven seals on a scroll, right? And before the seventh seal was opened up, there was this kind of this hallelujah chorus that said a similar kind of thing to what we're reading here in Revelation 11, 17, 18, 19. We talked about seven trumpets, and, and there were six of them blown, and now here at the seventh one, there's this, there's this chorus again. It's a similar chorus, a little bit different. And the angels are saying, uh, the elders are saying, praise the God who is and the God who was, indicating that there's no more future. Everything is now. Some people, some people think that we've got seven seals, seven trumpets, and now seven bold judgments. We'll get into them in the next couple of weeks, that there are 21 things all happening in a sequence. Others say, no, there's just seven things, and they're talked about three different times from three different perspectives. you got seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. It's just the same thing happening again. At the end of each one, there's a chorus, and it's like a repeat the verse. This is what some, these are things that you can look into in your small groups. What do, what do people see? Is it 21 things? Is it seven things? Well, we might ask ourselves the question, does it matter? I believe the answer is not very much. Because what is all of it telling us? All of it is telling us that there is a time when God is going to say, that's enough. And people have either decided to follow him or not. But what all of these judgments are telling us is until that time, God keeps saying, turn to me, turn to me, turn to me. Have I gotten your attention yet? Turn to me. Do you understand the love of this God we're talking about? Do you understand the incredible love of the God of the universe? This God who is not all fed up yet, but this God who continues to wait so that everyone who's going to turn to him does. Whether there's seven judgments that are just repeated from different perspectives. Some say that, you know, some people are looking at this from the perspective, um, you know, the, the seven seals are the perspective of the church experiencing opposition. The seven trumpets are from the perspective of the world seeing judgment. The seven bowls are from the perspective of heaven as the world is not heeding the judgments. You can go back and look at the recording of this sermon on YouTube if you didn't get all that. But whether there's seven things or 21 things, what we know is that God is calling out to his creation even now saying, turn to me. Come back to me. Repent of all your stuff and come back to me. This is a message of a loving God. See, people, people want to look at Revelation, especially people who are kind of got an agenda against the Lord, and they want to say, how can a loving God ever do such a terrible thing as send somebody to hell for eternity? Well, the answer is kind of in here, right? 
a loving God who gives chance after chance after chance for years, not just for a week. There's, some people talk about three and a half years. Some people talk about just huge amounts of time. But God, who keeps coming to people over and over and over again, even getting their attention with things like water turning to blood and things like fire from the sky, is there anybody who has an excuse at that point? I mean, what does a loving God do? A loving God says, okay, fine, you want to reject me? You go ahead and reject me. How many of you, and, and this is one of those cliches that gets kind of thrown around from time to time. There's that old line, if, if you love them, you got to let them go. That's been really misapplied certain times, hasn't it? And it's turned into just too many really terrible songs. But there's, there's this idea sometimes, isn't there? And, and I'm going to ask you, those of you who are parents of adult children, you have seen this perhaps more clearly than any of the rest of us. Have you realized that when you love your child, there comes a point where even if they are driving you crazy, even if their decisions seem to be so messed up that you just have to be hands off? Have some of you noticed this? You need to let them make their decisions. You need to let them deal with the consequences. You need to let them learn and grow from this. How many of you parents have learned? And maybe this isn't even an adult for kids or for adult children. Maybe this is for everybody that has even little children. How many of you have learned that you cannot control everything for your kids. To grow and mature means that they have to learn for themselves, right? Isn't that one of the challenges of being a parent is knowing when do I step in and when do I step back? Are you loving if, if you say, okay, child, you're choosing to go and be crazy and I've told you about it and I've tried to teach you and I've tried to get your attention over and over again, but you insist on going the wrong way. All right, go ahead. That's what it means sometimes when you say that if you love someone, you let them go. Do you get the picture? You see what I'm talking about? Do you ever think of God's love that way? Maybe what's happening at the end of times when, when justice is finally measured and when those who reject God are sent to hell and those who, those who have turned towards God are, are welcomed into heaven, maybe what God is saying is, I love you enough, I'm going to let you live with your decisions. I love you enough that even if it destroys you, I, I, I cannot force you to love me. And so God says, I'm going to let you go. How does a loving God do this? God lets us have the freedom to make choices. And sometimes those choices are disastrous, even as in the case of these people who give glory to God, but won't give their lives to God. Oh, see, we could study this stuff forever, couldn't we? These elders around the throne say to the Lord, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Chapter 12, oh, there's so much more imagery, but I'm not going to go into it today. We're, we're not going to go there. I'm going to give you a summary. Here, here's the summary of Revelation chapter 12, okay? You can go home and read this today in your own Bibles. If you have more questions, we can talk about it, especially talk about it in your small groups this week or next week as you meet. But in chapter 12, John symbolically depicts the cosmic war between God and Satan. And he talks about God's total victory on behalf of those who follow him. Prior to Revelation chapter 12, we hear about the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit talked about a lot. But here in, Rome, in uh, Revelation chapter 12, we see an unholy Trinity being revealed. All of these are discussed in the book of Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus. All of these are mentioned here in Revelation chapter 12, and they move on. There's this unholy Trinity of a dragon, of a beast from the sea, and a beast from the earth. 
And the dragon hates the Lord and hates humanity and does all he can to try to overthrow him. But the dragon's not strong enough. We call that dragon Satan or the devil. But chapter 12 is about how the Lord has victory over that dragon. Chapter 13 is a symbolic depiction of the dragon's attempt to mislead those who follow the Lord. The attempts of the beasts, both the one from the sea and the one from the earth, to distract humanity. Some say through the symbols of man-centered religion and man-centered empires. That's Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Study it some more if you're curious. If you're not, I've got good news for you. This sermon's almost over. What is all of this saying? What are these chapters about in Revelation? There is great opposition to the Lord, but God is calling people, all people, still back to him. God will have victory, and he wants as many of us as possible to be with him in that victory. And Revelation is the story of how God is working, going to work that out, even working today in our world. And there's lots of details and lots of symbols that can keep us wrapped up for a long time. But the big idea is that God loves us enough to keep trying to get our attention. And now today I want to end in a similar way to the way I ended last week. If you weren't here last week, We talked about how we know that God is still working to call people to himself. And we're told in the scriptures that we who are God's children, we have this ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation means that we pray for our enemies. We pray for our enemies because our enemies are not human people. Our enemies are the heavenly forces of evil. So we pray for our human, quote unquote, enemies the way that Moses and Aaron did, the way that Jesus did. And I wanted to ask you the question again, as I asked you last week, have you been praying for the people who frustrate you? Not just praying that they would be stopped, but praying for them. We need to pray for our enemies if we're going to have this ministry of reconciliation that that we're told that we have while God is working things out in his last days. In Romans 12, we're told to bless those who persecute us, bless them and don't curse. See, our words matter. We must speak well, even about our enemies. This is not popular in our world today. We have the freedom of speech, and many of us use it to say stupid things. But Romans reminds us that our words matter. We are to bless even those who persecute us. Bless them and don't curse. Because the scripture tells us that God will take revenge when the time is right. We need to get out of the way and leave room for the Lord's vengeance. Our words matter. We must speak well about our enemies. How have you been talking about people this week? And we're even taught to serve our enemies, to feed them and give them something to drink. Again, we leave revenge to God. We overcome evil with good. This is a very clear teaching of Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of nebulous stuff that we can get into with Revelation. What's this mean and what's that mean? It's very clear. Jesus said over and over again, pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. And leave vengeance to the Lord. How are you doing with that, church? Some of us in our house eat toast for breakfast. I like to leave the butter out on the counter because I don't like hard butter. So I leave the butter out on the counter. We have a little, nice little butter dish and it has a little cover on it so there's not like, you know, gross stuff getting stuck on there throughout the day. But it's very interesting to me. We have... We have both a heater and an air conditioner in our house. I don't know if any of you are like this. You know, the, the temperature of our house varies some, but it's not like it goes from 50 degrees to 90 degrees. You know, it's a pretty narrow... Our, our house is always within like an eight-degree range somewhere. 
But it's amazing to me how the weather has turned cold in the last two weeks. And, you know, just the weather getting a little colder outside, it's affected probably the average temperature of, of our kitchen by two or three or four degrees. Do you know that in the last two weeks, that butter, when I get it in the morning, even though it's still sitting at the very same place on the counter, that butter is hard in the morning instead of soft in the morning. It shouldn't make that much of a difference, but apparently we're right at that sweet spot where butter goes from really nice and easy to spread to tearing up your toast. <laughs> it's just a couple degrees. I mean, it's not even cold outside yet. But we're at that spot in our kitchen where I'm just coming to terms with the fact that the next couple months are going to drive me nuts. Just put, it, put that little pat of butter on the toast, let it sit there for 30 seconds, and then spread it. All summer, I was just enjoying the nice, easy spread. With the butter in our kitchen, a few degrees makes a big difference. And church, I feel like we're in a day. I feel like we're in an age. I feel like we're in an era where a few degrees for us makes a big difference too. And that's why we're talking about this stuff in Revelation, remembering what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future. Some of you in this room, you, you've been turned toward God for a long time. You don't need to do a 180 degree turn, turning away from your sin and turning to the Lord. You, you've largely done that and, and it's just kind of about maintenance for you. But even on your track to the Lord, a few degrees can make a big change. So even for those of us who have followed the Lord for a long time, there is something that we can learn in the book of Revelation that will help us to zero in, to get into that sweet spot where we are just what God wants us to be. But there are some of you in this room who are still a few degrees off. There are some of us in this room who, who are just kind of discounting or setting aside the seriousness of God's judgment. We are wrapped up in the love and, and we know the grace of God, but we forget that there is judgment and we forget that it's important that we follow God with all that we are, that we don't just give glory to him, but that we give our lives to him. And some of you need to make a few degree change to come back to the Lord and leave all that other junk behind you and turn to him. A few degrees, church, I think makes a big difference. So I just want to challenge you as I challenge myself to be in that sweet spot where, where we recognize God for all that God is, where we celebrate him for all that he's done, where we revere him for all that he's capable of, and when we trust him for all that's yet to come our way. The way that we live matters. And so we need to keep thinking well praying well and processing well as we go through this scripture that God has given us, this, this apocalypsis that Jesus has shown to John, that John wrote down to us for us to read it for some reason. Let's keep at it. Let's keep at it so, it won't, so we don't keep tearing up the toast. Will you pray with me while our worship team comes forward? Thank you, God, for getting our attention Lord, I thank you that there are so many people in this room already who have given their lives to you, who are yielded to you. I thank you that there are so many in this room already who have accepted your offer of grace and who know that they are righteous in your sight, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done for us. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. But Lord, if there are people in this room right now or, or people who are listening online or people who are just tuning in 
who have big changes to make, who need to do a 180-degree turn towards you, Lord, I pray that you would inspire them and get their attention in such a way that they can join your kingdom instead of just walking on their own. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to keep reaching out and calling out. Help us to do the same. But Lord, Holy Spirit, send your power so that those who are far away from you would turn toward you. And Lord, help all of us as we live out these days together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, will you stand and sing with us this closing song, Jesus Messiah? Mm-hmm.